Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Really pleased to say a friend of this program and an old friend of mine, Danny Blanchflack, can join us now. Dartmouth College Professor of Economics and former member of the MPC, uh, the Bank of England. Danny, your thoughts as we switch from 7-2 to 6-3 at the BOE? Well, that's really quite a surprise. So if you're Andy Haldane, you have to explain to me and to other commentators why last month and the month before you voted against a rate rise, and since then the data have all worsened. Every piece of data that exists has got worse. So the question simply is, did you make a mistake then or are you making a mistake now or both? Um, the answer clearly is that the economy is flowing. Industrial production figures got pretty bad. No wage growth at all. Uh, Brexit um, having a major impact on investment. So I'm, I haven't had a chance. Obviously, the decision has just come. Yeah. But this is completely astonishing. And how you could possibly vote for a rate rise in these circumstances seems to me to be a major puzzle. Um, I've asked this question, and I'm happy for anybody to call in and tell me. Tell me any data in the real world that actually sustains a claim that you should raise rates. There is none. Well, especially in, in the in the United none. Kingdom at the moment, Danny. And for our listeners that might not be familiar with the members of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, the two individuals that have been hiking or at least voting for a rate hike at the BOE, Michael Saunders, formerly of Citigroup, Ian McCafferty, these are the hawks on the Bank of England. We expect those right. two to pop up. Andy Haldane is not just the chief economist, Danny. He's been the chief dump. Right. What's going on there? Well, he, wrote, he made a very strange speech the other day, um, which had really nothing to do with monetary policy. I mean, I'm, I'm finding it pretty hard to understand. I mean, especially because of the bank's failures in its forecast to forecast wage growth, to forecast productivity. Um, I'm trying to find where it says the reason that he voted for this rise. Uh, and I'm really afraid I'm struggling to see it. Um, um, maybe maybe others can see, but um, I, I don't quite understand why he's changed his position. Um, I think it's a pretty embarrassing change because there's the question everybody should ask him. Blanchard, I would like to ask you a single question. Yeah. What data in the world, A, has been there, and B, has changed since you voted against one a month ago? And the answer is there is none. No, well, no well, Tom, just to bring... Every um, piece of data is worsened. Got to jump in, Danny. Got to say good morning to my co-anchor. Tom Keane. Um, good morning to you, Tom. The, the Bank of England, the consensus is that the slowdown in yeah. the first quarter is temporary. That it's temporary. Really? Well, David, you've pushed against this to great criticism. The Conservatives love to go after you because you're doom and gloom and there's no economic growth. For a spot, spat there was, and even in the United States, there's substantial economic growth, but we are not seeing the Blanche Flower industry wages go up. Right. And, and right. I, I'm fascinated, the United Kingdom, how you raise rates into flat or even negative real wages. Has that ever happened real, in monetary theory? No, no. So we've just had a study, Donna. The real wages today in the UK are 6.5% below what they were in 2008. And the study has been done showing this is the worst performance of real wages in 210 years for which we have data. So, so basically, the, I've just found the paragraph. It's a wing and a prayer. 
Um, everything's really bad, but honestly, boss, honestly, 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 it's going to get better. It was erratic. It's due to the weather. It's due to who knows what. Sounds There's like our annual review, doesn't it, Tom? But Sounds like our annual review. You know, it's going to yeah, get better, I promise. Or erratic. Sorry. Sorry, Don. Yeah. Go so, ahead, John, please. So let's make this a little bit more broader, Danny. There just seems to be a willingness amongst central bankers right now to get away from emergency policy settings. Yeah. Um, let's be clear, they're at about 50 basis points at the Bank of England. The ECB's at negative right. 40 basis points. Quite clearly, we don't have an economic situation that warrants an emergency policy setting on a global basis, Danny. So what are they doing, and what do you think has really made them maybe a little bit more nervous about the future? Well, I don't know. I'm, re- I'm reading this through. They say we're, they don't think there are benefits of waiting for additional information. That seems... Peculiar. I mean, I think the obvious argument <clears throat> is that bankers want rates to be higher. They obviously had realized that um, at some point they're going to need to cut them again. But this is, this, is, this is the economics of making up things as you go along. I mean, you raise rates, and that's going to – because you yeah. worry about a recession. But by raising rates, you cause the recession. I mean, that, that's the reality. Um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at what they said, there is absolutely nothing in what they say. They say – Honestly, it's all going to get better. Um, we don't believe anything in the real world. We just know that things are, are fine and we can raise rates. Well, that's just gibberish. <clears throat> well, there's nothing in the data whatsoever to sustain that. Quickly here, uh, Professor, we've got to move on to important topics. But um, what, what is the catalyst for central banks to cave in given this difficult data? How do they, how do they get there and save face? Well, obviously, I think you're asking the wrong person. I mean, it has to be based on a forecast. It has to be that as unemployment moves to, to, right. to lower, everything in the past is going to gen, generate for you wage growth, and that's inflation, and you care about inflation. Right. So you want to get your retaliation okay. first. But they've been saying that for the last 10 years. We haven't seen any of that. It's a right. complete misunderstanding of the labor market. My right. new paper says exactly that. So I just think this is... You know, these people are just very poor thinkers. They're, they're stuck in the 1970s. No, 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 no. nothing in the no. to sustain this. No, FIFA, so what? FIFA's stuck in the 1970s. <laughs> and now for our global audience, we go to the important topic of the go day. On. Professor Blanche Flower, would you explain why Gareth Bale is not playing for the United Kingdom in the World oh, Cup? Tom, I mean, Wales no. can't even score against the Republic of Ireland. They're thrown out. Right. Wouldn't England have a better chance against Germany and Belgium here in a couple days if Gareth Bale was playing for them and not this this view of the 1970s of Wales or Scotland? Right. The two Brits on this call will find it extremely hard to explain why all four countries play together in the Olympics, but in soccer they don't. So clearly having a bigger pool to pull from is better, but England at least beat Tunisia. My, hey Danny, my, my Welsh team ain't there, just uh, like the Americans. I want to ask a really important question, and it's yeah. going to give um, Tom a little bit of an insight to the competitive yeah. nature of the United Kingdom. Um, yeah. Does the Welsh Danny Blanchflower support England when they play Panama this weekend? Uh, well, Cardiff City... Do you hear the hesitation? <laughs> Do you hear the hesitation, Tom? Do you hear that? Do you oh, love how that works? Can we, we get the, that on tape? The, the rest of the world thinks Great. we're friends. This is not how it works oh, in this sport. Is, <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Are you really going to root for Panama this weekend, Professor? No, I can't watch it. I find it really boring. <laughs> anyway, especially if it was 
I just learned a lot. You know, folks, oh, you know, I'm dear. the ugly American here, and I'll tell you, I just learned a lot about this disunited it kingdom. It is so competitive, Tom. Professor Blanchflower, go away. Thank you so much. He's with Dartmouth <laughs> College. And ever, John, I am learning so much about this idiocy. Isn't it ridiculous? Isn't it ridiculous? He every, nailed it. He everyone, said, in, in, everyone outside the UK looks in and thinks it's a united kingdom. I mean, when it comes to sport, it couldn't be more disunited. And, and am I right that he said correctly that in the Olympics, you're all in it together, but not yeah, for it's, soccer? It's team GB, Team Great Britain. But when it comes to when it comes to football, I separate did, teams. I, I didn't, Michael Barr, I didn't know this until like a week ago. Farrell, That's like oh, the Olympics for the U.S. We're all in until it comes to baseball. Did you just hear Go that? David Blanchflower paused. He will not support England. <laughs> Can we do a Bloomberg headline on it? Blanchflower. He's supporting support Panama. 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 Thank you. <laughs>
Well, what it is is the, imp the imposition by China of tariffs in response to what we've done on exporting SUVs from South Carolina to China. And that was in direct response to the actions we've taken. Oh, the uh, retaliation, sure. Well, naturally, there's going to be some retaliation by the foreign company, by countries, and they will try to pick out politically sensitive areas to deal with. But at the end of the day, we are a net importer, not a net exporter. And that means a very fundamental truth. Take China. They sell us around a half a billion, half a trillion dollars a year of goods. We only sell them around 150 billion. That means once they put tariffs, if it went that far on the whole 150, they have nothing more that they can do. We could go theoretically all the way up to the 500. That's not a very easy game for them to play. And it's similar ratios with the other countries. That's what President Trump means right. when he says that if it really does get to be a big war, we have many more bullets than any of these other countries. Right. When it comes to tariffs, but there are other ways, uh, obviously, of hurting imports, non-tariff barriers. And in the last statement on China, actually, what they specifically said was quantitative and qualitative. So that tariffs are not the only way that they can retaliate. No, it's true, and it's, nor are they the only way that we can retaliate. Uh, the truth is that China, Europe, a lot of other big countries have been using non-tariff trade barriers for a long, long time. They put on weird standards that it's impossible for American products to meet. They put in all sorts of elaborate and non-science-based restrictions. For example, some of these countries keep complaining, oh, we can't import U.S. beef because of mad cow disease. Well, do you think mad cow disease is really rampant in the U.S.? I haven't heard a report of it in years. <laughs> Similarly, some countries say, well, we can't right. import your chickens because right. of Asian flu. When's the last time you heard a case of Asian yeah. flu in the United yeah. States? Yeah. It's all nonsense. Yeah. The truth is that they've been very protectionist. We have been very close to free market. And now that we're trying to defend ourselves against their bad practices, they're screaming and yelling. Well, yep. they've been spoiled for many, many years, and that game is over. And, and, and Mr. Secretary, I really think there's no one who knows about the situation who would deny that China has been protectionist in all sorts of different ways. I don't think anyone would take issue with that in the media or otherwise. At the same time, what happens when there's a tension between, on the one hand, growth and jobs, which was what the president's first order of business was, tension between that on the one hand and getting fairness and reciprocity? If you have to choose between the two, would you rather have less trade and less growth and have it be fairer and more reciprocal? Well, we want it to be fairer and more reciprocal. Reciprocity is an important keynote to our trade policy. The question is, how do you get there? And the only way we're going to get foreign countries to lower their inordinate barriers is by making it more painful for them to continue those practices than to get rid of them. That's what this is all about. This is about an end game that really is free, fair, and reciprocal trade. 
It's not about trying to make money out of tariffs. That's not really the end game here at all. But we need something to induce changes in their behavior. And it's already happening. In steel and aluminum, once we put our tariffs on, suddenly Europe is taking safeguard measures all over the place to protect their border. They weren't doing that before we put the tariffs on. Japan had never had a trade enforcement group in METI, their big uh, government agency. Right. Now they have a 20-person trade enforcement group. We're going to fix the problem of protectionism around the world, and we're going to fix it by making it more painful for those right. countries to do bad practices than to do the right thing which is to lower the trade barriers and lower their tariffs. And once again, Mr. Secretary, I don't think anyone would quibble with that as a, a goal, a, a laudatory goal. The question is, though, how much pain are we willing to suffer in order to get that done? Because the pain goes both ways. And for example, Deutsche Bank is out with estimates that in fact a trade war actually could take three-tenths off of GDP growth. If you knew today that that was the price you had to pay, would you be willing to pay it in order to get to reciprocal trade? Well, it's very hard to make an omelet if you don't break some eggs. And so we really have, we have no choice but to change the way that these other companies and countries are using unfair trade practices against us. We have to do it. It's unfortunate that it wasn't done at an earlier point in time. Would have been a lot simpler, a lot easier, and a lot less painful. But it's really important that we do it because we're talking about our future. And that is more important than the growth goal? Because, I mean, you, the Republicans came up with, the president put forward a tax plan that really was growing GDP nicely. Are you giving a fair amount of that back in order to get to the reciprocal world that you want? Well, we don't think so. And uh, we think that you'll continue to see very strong employment. The biggest problem most American companies have now is finding enough qualified labor to do the expansions that they're putting forward. That's why you're seeing all of these apprenticeship programs, all of these joint programs with local community colleges. Finding workers is the biggest problem right now for American industry not anything else, because we've cut the regulations, released those shackles, we've cut both individual and corporate taxes, making America a wonderful destination for foreign investment and direct U.S. And that's why we have here at Select USA Summit over 3,000 attendees. We have 66 countries represented here. That's 15 more countries than we had a year ago. We have five cabinet secretaries here. We've got 14 ambassadors, U.S. ambassadors to foreign countries. This is a real turnout, and we will be making some announcements about new foreign direct investment into the U.S. That's the real world, not the whiners who have criticized every single thing that the president has done. They said he'd never get a tax bill through. Well, he did. Then they said, well, it won't do any good for the economy. It'll only help rich people. Well, unemployment is at record lows. Um, corporate 
enthusiasm, corporate optimism, relatively all-time highs, right. small business optimism, low unemployment overall, very low unemployment for women, very low unemployment for uh, African-Americans, very right. low unemployment for Hispanics. So anybody who thinks the economy is being wrecked sure. simply doesn't know what they're talking about. No, and don't, please don't misunderstand me. I was not suggesting all the economy is being wrecked. The question is, is there a price being paid? Let me ask a specific question that's come up in the trade context, and that is the ZTE situation. I know there were negotiations last night up on Capitol Hill. Do you believe that there will be a compromise that will allow ZTE to continue to do business in the United States? Well, there may very well be. The, the President and Secretary Mnuchin and I met with a bunch of Republican congressional leaders yesterday, and that was one of the many topics that we covered. I think the important thing is to modify ZTE's behavior from what it was before. We've now taken over $2 billion in fines out of them. For the first time ever, we've had the ability to implant into a country, company that had violated sanctions, our code of conduct, our code of uh, export control, and we have unfettered access to the company in order to monitor it. If there are any further violations, we will shut them down just as we did before, and we have the power to do that. Okay, finally, Mr. Secretary, uh, there's been this issue about short-selling some shares in a shipping company. I don't want to go into the details of that. Frankly, I'm not sure I fully understand them, but you've certainly had to talk about them plenty. I have a more general question. Many of us were surprised, in fact, that senior government officials are involved in short-selling or derivatives of any sort. For example, here at Bloomberg, we're not allowed to do that. In retrospect, given what you've been put through, would it be a better policy or rule to just say senior government officials shouldn't be engaged in things like short-selling at all? No, this is not a, a, what you would call a typical short sale. What happened, some shares in one company were not physically in my possession, and there was a whole process I had to go through to get them into possession so I could sell them. I had begun selling those shares, the ones that I did have possession of, months before. So when I learned about the new shares, wanted to close out that holding. Right. It happened to be a company called Navigator. Right. And as the, the, when the shares were delivered to me, my own shares, I used them to substitute. Right. So there was no profit or loss yeah, no. on the so-called short sale. It was simply a means of implementing a transaction. Right. Right. It, and I had no gain or loss yes, by change but, in the market price. Please understand there was nothing in my question that suggested anything improper had been done or anything ill-gotten gains, nothing like that. Right. I'm actually asking a more basic question, sort of a concession to the shortness of life, as it were. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't pleasant for you to even have to explain all this. Wouldn't it just be better to just have a simple rule that said senior government officials don't participate in things like short selling? Well, this is not a typical short sale. A typical short sale is you borrowed stock that you do not own, you sell the borrowed stock, putting up collateral for it, and then when the stock goes down, you cover it and make a profit. That simply is not what happened here. I do think that that kind of short sale is not a good thing for government officials to do. But this was simply a technical means of complying with the delivery rules of the New York Stock Exchange. 
I didn't gain or lose regardless what the stock did after I entered into the transaction. Whereas in a short sale, if the stock went down, I would profit. If the stock went up, I would lose. My situation was one where I was totally indifferent as to the subsequent price of the stock. And as it happens, the stock is now at a higher level than it was when I sold it anyway. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I, I think I do understand. I really want to thank you for taking the time, Mr. Secretary. Uh, I know you want to get back to your uh, investment summit there in Washington. It's good of you to spend time with us. This is Wilbur Ross, U.S. Commerce good. Secretary. Well, thank David you. Weston uh, with the Secretary of Commerce. And now joining us from Vienna, a gentleman who's been a great supporter of the program, his classic The Commanding Heights and the original The Prize in a way underestimated, and I urge all of you to dive into it, The Quest, Energy, Security, uh, and the remaking of all of this. Daniel Jurgen joins us uh, right now. Dr. Jurgen, wonderful to have you uh, with us. With OPEC in Vienna, and to take a title of one of your chapters in The Quest, is there a breaking of the bargain at OPEC? Are the pressures so great on the cartel that that cartel bargain will be broken? No, I don't think so. I mean, the feeling, I think the sense here is that uh, it's been expanded. And the phrase that people are using, we've used is the Vienna Alliance, because the key factor is that this isn't just the old band of OPEC, but it's also Russia, in particular, and other non-OPEC countries that came together to, you know, after the price collapse to stabilize the price and get investors going. What? It's interesting that the Tom, Tom, just to say, Please. it's interesting. I was reflecting was that one of the biggest beneficiaries of this has been uh, the United States in terms of the recovery of the domestic U.S. oil industry. What is the fair price of a barrel of oil right now? Well, I think that's a... For thousands of years, almost, philosophers have been arguing about that. At least thousands but, of uh, pages, according to the, the yeah. thick Jürgen books. <laughs> yes, but I think, you know, what one was hearing here, you know, is that people say, you know, sort of 55 to 70 was described by a couple of people as the fairway that would uh, assure sufficient investment, and uh, but without uh, impact on... <clears throat> Uh, you know, the overall economy, mm -hmm. in fact, acting as a stimulus to one of the interesting things that came out is, you know, how much manufacturing companies around the world uh, depend upon the, the market, this, the, the energy markets for their equipment. So, you know, I, you know, probably at another time, there'd be another fair way. But uh, I can, you can remember uh, right. Tom before the oil price collapsed in 2014. It was said $100 a barrel was good for consumers and producers. So it's a, those goalposts shift. Okay. One of the things shifting, Dr. Jurgen, is the immigration debate in Germany and, of course, the immediacy of the cultural and immigration debate in America. Your commanding heights maybe does not take on immigration in our history of immigration directly, but it permeates all of your classic book, The Commanding Heights. Daniel Jurgen, on the newness of this immigration debate, or is it something that we're simply revisiting across our history? 
Well, it's certainly been periods. There was a Chinese Exclusion Act uh, a century ago. Um, but for the most part, in the 19th century, it was uh, open. It was very much open borders. Um, but obviously, you know, now it's such a divisive issue in the United States and in Germany. It's a huge problem for uh, Angela Merkel. Within that is the spirit of capitalism, which is you need population to make capitalism go. Would we be a better company with simply more immigrants allowing for greater population growth? Well, I think economists certainly say that uh, that uh, one of the strengths of the U.S. economy is uh, immigration, and that increases the overall productivity of the economy. And, you know, you can see, and I mean, we're, you know, we're in a period now of, uh, where labor in many, many markets is very tight. Let's leave it there. Daniel Jurgen, thank you so much from Vienna today in the OPEC uh, meetings. And I really can't say enough about his latest, The Quest, uh, really a wonderful book on the changes going on, and some of which he's widely predicted uh, within uh, the global economies. This is the interview of the day for Global Wall Street. No, not about the trading era at Deutsche Bank. Thank you, Sonali Basic, for this. This is brilliant, brilliant work by McKinsey Group on the state of corporate bonds. Susan Lund joins us now with McKinsey on this exceptionally important 50-page report. Susan, congratulations on advancing Reinhardt and Rogoff in that they said this time is different and all the focus is on government debt. And instead, we should look at private debt. And there's households in that, but there's corporate debt, which just builds and builds. Are we reducing 2005 and 2006? Thank you for having me. Well, it's true that corporate debt or debt of non-financial companies has grown almost as much as government debt since the financial crisis. And there's not been a lot of attention paid to this. So in this report, we looked specifically at what's happening in the corporate bond markets, which is that they've really taken off as banks have retrenched, companies have turned to bonds, and they've tripled in size. We actually think this is a welcome diversification, but there are definitely signs of risk. And already, defaults on corporate debt obligations are above yeah. the 30-year average, and we think they could rise further. You've got, and folks, as always with McKinsey, the charts are stunning. There's the U.S., there's Western Europe, and then there's what I'm going to call, Susan, the mystery of China, other developing economies, and other advanced economies. Is there a transparency out there that was not there in 2006, or is too much of your bar chart a mystery? Well, there is more transparency. This is why economists like myself have long said that bond markets are a good alternative to bank loans because they're priced in the market. Credit yeah. rating agencies are out there rating the bonds. So there is more transparency. But as you noted, the growth has been in the United States, but also in Europe, in China has been staggering. So their corporate bond market went from virtually nothing 10 years yeah. ago to $2 trillion, one of the largest in the world uh, today. And other emerging markets have been able to issue bonds as well. 
I mean, I, I can't say this enough, folks. Susan Lund with us, the McKinsey Group, and <clears throat> the title of the store uh, of, of this um, essay is. Uh, let me get it up here. Hold on, I just lost it. Rising corporate debt, peril or promise? And basically, Susan, every single executive on every single airline should be reading this thing. What? Let me ask an open question. What in your 36-page report is the number one message to chief financial officers burdened with the idea of should we do the next tranche, should we do the next issuance? Yeah, the big message is that, look, the market has probably crested. So it's tripled in size, but now we've got rising interest rates. And the analysis we've done in this report looks at how many companies have issued debt, and in fact, they're in a risky position to repay. Right. And so we're likely to see some fallout in the market. Now, long term, there's lots of potential for further growth. Right. But short term, we would expect defaults to continue to rise. And now, folks, wonk surveillance with Tom Keene. Pim Fox and John Farrell, where we get nerdy with you with Susan Lund of McKinsey Group. Okay, Susan, here's the reality with a major shout out to David Goldman and his, his classic work at Bank of America. If there's a tranche or a set of issuances of a given nation or housing bond or corporate bond, everybody focuses on the garbage, which gets bad and gets worse. But the real problem is the senior quality loans that are priced at 98 or 96, and they move down in crisis to 88. Are we in that same position again, where the real risk is not the junk that's identified as junk, but the real risk is quality senior corporate paper that could see a price decline of a quality 94, 95, 96 down to 88 or 87? Is that where the real risk is? That's one of the two big risks. So um, in our analysis, we find that 40% of um, overall corporate bonds in the U.S. are now triple B, according to S&P. So it's just one notch above junk. So the average credit quality of the investment-grade issuers, as you're pointing out, has slowly gone down in this era of ultra-low interest rates. And so... Economic shocks, maybe from trade, from other factors, could actually push those companies now down below the bar. And by the way, the high-yield bonds already are at record sizes, nearly $2 mm-hmm. trillion dollars outstanding. You've got a chart on EM that's just stunning, Exhibit 10, for those of you keeping score at home. And the delta here on share of issuers at high risk of default for Brazil, China, and India is 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 it's a jump condition over everybody else. When you see EM currency depreciation against strong dollar, can you overlay that with your debt study into some form of crisis, some form of redux of 1998 or 1992? Well, definitely there are going to be losses in EM debt. So as we've shown roughly a quarter of issuers in Brazil and China um, have EBITDA over interest payments of less than one and a half. Sorry for being so wonky, but those of you who understand interest coverage, it means that they can basically finance their debt today, but they've got very little cushion. 
So if their finances go south or if their currencies depreciate, uh, they're in a lot of trouble. And that's today. That's before, in, you know, the Fed started raising interest rates. So we're seeing rates head up, and it means a lot of these companies are not going to be able to afford this as debt matures. One of the things we document in this report is that over the next five years, you're going to have somewhere between $1.6 trillion and $2 trillion each year of these corporate yeah. bonds coming due. And you'll have to rewrite the report because of Fox, Disney, Comcast. From your distance, and with great respect for McKinsey Group, their goal is not to uh, model out the latest hot transaction. But how do you respond, Susan Lund, when you see Lex and the FT, I believe it was one or two bids ago at 17 times EBITDA. And I don't know where that number is now with the latest Disney uh, the Disney um, uh, offer, but you know we're out of twenty times EBITDA on a given M and A transaction. Does that denote silly season for McKinsey Group? Well, look, there's a lot of pressure in the market. I don't want to predict the next crisis. The one thing I will say that gives me some uh, ability to sleep at night over corporate debt Please. is that. You have not, I don't think this is 2008 all over again, because in the mortgage crisis, those assets were securitized and then created into CDOs and CDO squared. So there was a lot of assets built upon the underlying uh, mortgage. You don't see that in the corporate bond market. Mm -hmm. So yes, some investors are going to face losses, companies uh, may be forced into bankruptcy. Uh, It'll be a real test for China. But I don't see the systemic risk and the interlinkages that you saw 10 years ago. Susan Lund, congratulations to you and Richard Dobbs and the rest at McKinsey Global Institute. Folks, I'll put this out on Twitter Twitter and really sell it over the next couple of days. Rising corporate debt, peril or promise, 36 brilliant pages, well charted by McKinsey and company. Just a tour de force on the state of our private debt. And this is said with great respect for the classic Reinhardt and Rogoff. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.